Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome. We're glad that you're here this morning, and uh, it's great to be in a warm place. It's a cold, windy day out here, but we are in a place with warm fellowship today, and we're glad to be uh, a part of that, and we're glad that you are a part of that as well. We welcome you. We welcome our guests, especially today, and uh, hope that you'll feel very much a part of our family as we worship the Lord together this morning. Let me call to your attention just a few announcements that we have this morning. Uh, first of all, let me remind everyone of the attendance sheets on each row. We'd like to ask if everyone would take that and uh, fill it out, check the appropriate box on there, and, uh, and pass it down the row so others can, uh, can fill it out as well. And especially if you would like to, uh, to receive our uh, email newsletter every Thursday, uh, put your email address on there so we can add you to our list, and we would love to, uh, to do that. Uh, some other things that are coming up, uh, Lent has begun. This is the, uh, the first Sunday of Lent, and uh, as is the tradition here in our community, um, we, we celebrate Lent at different churches uh, with a Lenten lunch every Wednesday. The first Lenten lunch will be this Wednesday at the First Christian Church, and it will start at 12.05, not 5 till 12, and not 12 o'clock, but 12.05, and that will give anybody an opportunity to, who works down in the area to get there um, uh, on their lunch hour. The, the service will begin at 12.05, and then we'll have lunch at 12.30. So I hope that you can be here for our first Lenten lunch this week at, uh, at the First Christian Church. Now, we are hosting the Lenten lunch the following week on March the 11th. And uh, so I hope that you can especially be here for that. That'll be a great time. I will not be preaching here on March the 11th. I will not be bringing the message. Beth Mackey, who is the rector at St. Paul's Episcopal Church, will be bringing the message here on, on March the 11th. But I want you to come. Uh, it's, a, it's a great time. And I will be preaching. We're swapping pulpits. I will be preaching at St. Paul's for their Lenten lunch on April the 1st. Now, I don't know if that has anything to do with April Fool's Day or anything like that, uh, but that's just the way it is. Uh, but I hope that you can attend as many of these Lenten lunches as you possibly can because they are a great opportunity to, to focus during our Lenten season on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what we, we are doing. We are preparing for Easter by focusing on the cross. And so I hope that you can attend uh, during that time. One more thing, I want to give thanks to everyone who worked so hard yesterday. Yesterday, uh, a group of folks uh, got together and, and um, did a lot of work to, uh, to uh, help remove some of the debris some, from the homes of some people who uh, were not able to get that done on their own. And uh, so I want to thank those people that, uh, that helped out there. Uh, David Campbell, Jika and Bob Crafton, Mark and Nora Hobson, Susan and Leslie Fowler, Christina Morgan, Kyle Keach, Mike Sugg, John Cornelius, and Larry Haltom. And also uh, thanks to, uh, to Jerry and Adele for breakfast tomorrow. That got us off to a good start. And I think I got everybody. Did I miss? Huh? You. Oh, me? Okay. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so I want to thank everybody who participated in that. That We had a great time, and, and, uh, and we worked really hard and got some really good stuff done uh, 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 yesterday morning. So thank you for that. 
we like to spend a time, a, a moment of greeting, so let me ask you to stand up, turn around, shake the hands of the people around you. Let's greet each other in the name of the Lord. grace and the mercy that you show us. God, just uh, bless all that we do, be in this service and touch the hearts of, of your followers and be with those who may not know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. I think everybody knows this next song. Jesus, ruler of all Oh, thou of God and 
morning. I'm glad to see all of you here this morning. I packed my bag before church this morning. I'm going to go on a trip. And I am so excited because I'm going to one of my favorite places. I'm going to go to the beach. So I packed my sunglasses. And I packed my hat. I always wear a hat when I'm out on the beach. And I got my beach towel. I'm so excited about going. Would you like to go with me? Would anybody like to go to the beach? It's freezing. No, actually, my brother's down there right now, and it's in the 80s. He's been calling, telling us how wonderful it is. Now, do you know how to get there? Does anybody know the directions? <gasps> Got to know where you're going first. Well, okay, say we're going to, let's go to Alabama, let's go to Orange Beach. Do you know the directions? Do you know which roads we take? Do you know how we get there? Fly? No, we're going to drive. We're, we can't afford to fly. We've got to drive. So it'd be a little bit difficult to get there if we didn't have directions, don't you think? If, fly on the airplane? We could try that. But if we didn't know for sure where to go get on the airplane, or if we just didn't have directions, it could get a little bit difficult at the airport. Well, today, Dr. Tim's going to talk to us about following Jesus. And I got to thinking about that, and I thought, well, do we have a map? Do we know how to follow Jesus? How, how do you know? Where do you go if you have questions about how to follow Jesus? That's the map. But where would you go? Where would you look if you needed the answers, if you needed directions? Where? The Bible. If you look in the Bible, you go to the Bible and help you to figure out your map for following Jesus. So I kind of worked on one this morning, and this is Jesus up here at the cross, and I got to thinking about our path when we're following Jesus, and there can be a lot of twists and turns, there can be a few bumps, and I looked in Matthew, if you go to the book of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7 will really help you with your directions on when you're trying to follow Jesus. And say you're going along here, and say right here at this turn in the road, say you have a friend who maybe isn't real nice to you. They say something kind of ugly to you. And if you go to the Bible and you look there in Matthew, it's going to say, turn the other cheek. What's that mean? If your friend says something ugly to you, what should you do? Forgive them? Maybe say, you, you hurt my feelings, but I'm not going to say something ugly back. Instead, let, let's just try to be friends and let's just go on from here. Turn the other cheek. So then you're going on down the road and you get to right here and you have a friend who maybe does something not very nice to you. Or maybe it's somebody you don't know who does something not very nice to you. And you go to the Bible and you look and it says, love your enemies. Good advice. Instead of, instead of, uh, instead of trying to do something hateful back to them, love your enemies. Then you go on down the road a little bit, and you got another turn in the road here. It says, do good to please God. Do good to please God. So when you go out and you do something nice for somebody, you're not doing that just to build yourself up. You're doing that to please God. You're doing that because in the Bible, if you look in Matthew, it's going to tell you that you need to go out and do good for others, and you need to do that in the name of God. Then you come along the path here, and this is one that I really have trouble with. Do not worry. Do not worry. So it tells you in Matthew. Well, that's hard to do. But in Matthew it says, 
Put your trust in God. Don't worry all the time. Somehow, some way, if you put your trust in God, it's all going to work out because God's got a plan for you. You come up here and you kind of got a bump in the road. Do not judge. That's another really difficult one. Do not judge. But if you go to Matthew, it tells you if you're following Christ, you're not judging others. And then right here, when you're almost to your finish point here, build on rock. And that means put your faith, put your life in God's hands. And God will, will, fight, will help you to get through this path that you need to go to follow Christ. Sometimes it's not an easy path. Along the path, you're going to run into people who are going to try to knock you off the road. But as long as you stick to your map, as long as you stick to the game plan that Christ has for your life, then you're going to be able to follow him. So I just want you to remember that this week. Remember that God has a plan for you. You need to read the Bible, and it will help you when you get to those difficult points in your life where you're just not really sure where your road's leading. Okay? Thank you. Our scripture reading for today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. 
He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciple, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of God for you and for me. Thanks be to God. And now if you would join with me in responsively reading the section uh, printed in your worship folder. The very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash, along with everything else I use to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. I'm not saying that I have this all together, that I have it made, but I am well on my way reaching out for Christ, who has so wondrously reached out for me.
Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank Thee for the many blessings of life. We thank Thee, Father, for the day that You have provided that we can come and worship Thee. We thank Thee, Father, for this place that You have provided for us. We pray, our Heavenly Father, this morning that You will be with our pastor as he comes and brings a word to us. We pray, Father, that you will help us open our hearts and receive the message in it. We pray, Heavenly Father, that this will always be a church that will be open for everyone, regardless of what they are. We pray, Father, that you will bless this offering this morning, guide and direct us, Father, help us be more humble, more thankful for the things that we have. We ask you in Christ's name. Amen.
Go with me, if you will, back to the Summer Olympics of 1996 in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Susan and I were lucky enough to attend several of the events during those games, and it was one of the most memorable times of my lives. Uh, we were not, however, at the event that I would like to call uh, for you to recall this morning. Uh, the women's, women's team's gymnastics tickets were in high demand and very hard to come by. But those of you who were interested in the Olympics 13 years ago surely remember this heroic young girl named Carrie Strug. Uh, Greg, if you could show the video there of, Craig, of, uh, of Carrie. I understand our audio is not very good, but uh, we have the video of this. You remember that? Some of you. Some of you aren't old enough to remember that. Uh, but many of you were probably watching. And you were stunned when this four-foot, eight-inch, 18-year-old girl charged down the runway, vaulted through the air, and landed on a leg that was so badly injured that it could only hold her up for a second, just long enough to ensure the first gold medal ever won by the United States women's gymnastics team. A few moments later, while a crowd of 32,000 people screamed and pounded each other on the back, six small red, white, and blue Olympians marched out to receive their gold medals, trailed only by their wounded teammate who was being carried in the arms of her coach. For Mark Starr, a writer for Newsweek magazine, this was an, Olymp uh, an athletic accomplishment inscribed for the ages. It had been a closely fought match all afternoon with the Americans surging ahead on the uneven bars and then maintaining their lead along the perilous balance beam and through their spectacular floor exercises and all they needed were solid performances on the last event which was the vault. If they could pull this off with just some solid performances they would win. The first four women vaulted successfully, they made good scores. The fifth tried twice and both times failed. And then Carrie Strug came along, the very last contestant. You couldn't write it any better than this, folks. On her first try, she sprawled ingloriously on the mat and at that point, the, the fanatical pro-USA crowd quieted down. Very few people noticed that Carrie, who had rolled over on her ankle and felt a snap, had stood up staring at her leg in dismay. Shake it off, her teammates urged her as she hobbled back down the runway. I don't think they understood that there was something wrong, she said afterwards. I thought that my ankle was broken and I felt the gold medal slipping away from us. Then her coach, Bella Caroli, leaned over the boards to give his instructions and, and Carrie cried out that she was in pain 
And then she asked him, do I have to do the second vault? And, and Bella, who was, who was not at all certain that the United States had, was safely ahead, he shrugged and he said later, I encouraged her, but she was the one who had to make the decision. And so this, little, this tiny little girl with a squeaky voice, you remember her voice, that squeaky voice, she went back out onto that runway. She whispered a little prayer asking God to help me in, in, somehow. And then she vaulted her way into Olympic history. And that's the kind of story that makes the Olympics so popular around the world, isn't it? Doesn't that just make your, your heart beat a little faster when, when we see somebody taking on a challenge against tremendous odds and then being successful in overcoming those odds. I mean, think about it. That's what makes a good story. That's the plot line for any book or any movie out there. Any exciting motion picture has that kind of a plot line. We watch as some solitary figure in, uh, tries to uh, takes on a stirring challenge, and, and it may be this, the challenge of going where no man has gone before, a la Star Trek, or it may be winning uh, the boxing match or the karate championship against all odds like Rocky or the Karate Kid. The adversaries may be the Nazis or the, a corrupt police force or the mob or terrorists trying to uh, hijack an airplane, or it may simply be a personal limitation that, that stacks the odds against the main character. But there is something about watching our hero go up against the forces of evil and then, just as things are looking their darkest, they win a great battle that brightens our outlook on life and helps us to believe that there is always hope. And this, my friends, is the story of Jesus. All the power of the Roman Empire was arrayed against Jesus. The odds were truly stacked against him. Nails were driven into his hands and his feet. A sword pierced his side. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And just when his enemies thought that they had laid this carpenter to rest forever, just when they thought that they had triumphed over the, his kingdom of love and compassion, just when they were beginning to feel comfortable with their treachery, a stone mysteriously moved in front of a grave. And this man who would not be defeated, this man whose love is stronger than any army that might be sent against him, this man whose spirit is alive even today, this unique man with the mark of the, of the nails still in his hands and his feet, stepped forward from that grave to conquer the entire world. And it is a story that encourages us to go on when life is so cruel and when our adversaries are so many. It is a story that encourages us to attempt the heroic and it reminds us that love is always stronger than hatred. And life is always stronger 
than death. And right is always stronger than wrong. That brings us to our scripture lesson for today. If anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In other words, this is your opportunity as a follower of Jesus Christ to be heroic. This is your call to go where few have ever gone before. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But what does that mean for us today? Well, first of all, we need to see that the call to follow Jesus is a call to be heroic. And folks, I want to tell you something. It's not for everyone. Let's just be honest with it. I, to be honest with you folks, Jesus has a lot of admirers out there, but not that many followers. And let that sink in just a second. <laughs> Jesus has a lot of admirers out there, but not that many followers. On one occasion, 5,000 men and an unknown number of women and children were fed by Jesus. And everybody got really excited about this new guy in town and all the wonderful things that he could do. But then when he spelled out what it truly meant to follow him, that huge number of people dwindled down to only 12 men and a handful of women. Folks, not everyone who heard him speak was willing to pay the price of discipleship. So you see, following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. It's a call to be heroic. And heroes have always been in short supply, haven't they? Years ago, Sydney, Australia was settled as a penal colony for Great Britain. They would send their convicts halfway around the world where they were completely isolated. And when the convicts had served their time, they were, they were free to leave Australia and go back to England or anywhere else for that matter. But there was a problem. Because, you see, there was no way to earn a living in the penal colony. And so when their time was up, they didn't come get them and bring them back home. It was up to them to find their way back home. But they had no, no resources. They had no money to buy passage on a ship. And so they were trapped there in Sydney. The ocean hemmed them, them in on one side, and there was a great range of mountains on the other. And to the north and the south, there were swamps and desert. And so there was no escape from this terrible, desolate land. The governor of the colony decided that Australia would never be developed until they could find some farmland and forests and other natural resources. And so they mounted a number of expeditions to go over the mountains. And one after another, they failed. No one was able to get beyond the mountains. And so finally, the governor declared that it was impossible no more attempts would be made. And so they named those mountains the Barrier Mountains because they thought that no one could get through. But then in 1812, three daring young men decided that nothing was impossible, and they set out to conquer the Barrier Mountains. They studied every expedition that had been attempted before, and, and suddenly they realized that a pattern was developing because all of the previous expeditions had followed the stream beds 
up through the valleys to reach the pass. And all of them came to a sheer cliff that blocked their passage. So these young men decided to take another approach. They would make their climb on the top of the ridge right from the very beginning. The climb, they would climb the hard path, staying on the peaks of the mountain range. And so they outfitted their expedition with horses, <coughs> horses and food and supplies. And, and a lot of people made fun of them. Why are you taking all those supplies, they were asked. And they replied, we will need them when we settle on the other side. They climbed up the difficult path and avoided the easy valleys that the others had taken. And they climbed the, the little hills and ridges at first and, and that led them up to the more difficult mountain peaks. And at last they reached the highest peak and they named it Mount York. And from that peak they could see beyond the mountains to the, the rolling valleys below and the, the rich land and the forest beyond. From that moment on, Australia was open for settlement. My friends, there is never any progress in any land until someone heroic comes along. And Jesus is that kind of hero. Jesus was opening up a new kind of frontier for each of us. A frontier that was far more significant than the settling of Australia. Because you see, Jesus' new frontier was the reign of God in the heart of every man, woman, and child. And in order to bring good, the good news of that kingdom to a world uh, that, that needed it so desperately, it would require men and women who were willing to lay aside their own priorities in life and to immerse themselves in His priorities. And so only those who were heroic would respond to the call of Jesus. If anyone would be my disciple, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The call to follow Jesus is a call to be heroic. But it's also a call to self-denial. If anyone would be my disciples, he said, let them deny themselves. Folks, let me ask you something. Do you know what it means to deny yourself? If you've ever had a mother or a father, a loving mother or father, you probably know a little bit about self-denial. If you've ever been a loving mother or father, then you know a little bit about self-denial because it goes with the territory. Glenn Plashen wrote a book titled Turning Point, where he tells a story about something that happened to him when he was a senior in college back in the midst of the Great Depression. It seems that his family didn't have the $20 that he needed to get back into college for his last year. But his father said, don't worry, son, we'll go down to the bank and I'll sign a note with you and we'll, we'll get the money. So they went down to the bank the next morning and the banker literally had tears in his eyes as he shook his head and said no. The directors had instructed him that without any collateral, there would be no loans and there are no, no exceptions. So they, they went to those private individuals who were known to lend money from time to time, but everywhere they went, there was the same old story. No collateral, no loan. 
And so it seemed that there would be no way for Glenn to get back into college for his senior year. However, the day before he was supposed to go back to college, a big truck pulled up to the back uh, to their house, and, and two men laid down some wooden boards from the bed of their truck to the, to the porch of the house. He wasn't there that afternoon, but afterwards he heard what happened. Because you see, there was one thing, one thing that his mother loved more than anything else in the world besides Jesus and her family, and that was her Gulbertson piano. It was the only decent piece of furniture they had in the whole house. But the men rolled it out of their house and onto the boards and up into the truck, and then the driver reached into his pocket and pulled out some money and handed the mother a $20 bill, a $10 bill, and a $5 bill. Then they got back in the truck and drove off. Drove off with the pride of his mother's life. His father threw his arms around her as she cried and cried. And, and that night his mother was so upset that she couldn't even talk about it. So his, his father told him what had happened. Son, you can go back to college tomorrow. Your mother has sold her piano. And then he handed Glenn the money. After that, Glenn thought, that is what God's love is like. The most precious possession God had was God's only son, and yet God gave him up to be disgraced and to be crucified so that we could learn how to love like that. That, my friends, that's self-denial. And so when Jesus said that those who would follow him must deny themselves, he was not asking anything of them that he was not willing to do himself. And so the call to follow Jesus is a call to be heroic. It's a call to self-denial. And finally, one more thing. The call to follow Jesus is a call to do just that. To follow. To follow. If anyone wants to become my disciple, said Jesus, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. What kind of disciple, what kind of life do you think the disciple of Jesus Christ really lives? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? Well, I think that's an easy one because I, I believe that the dis disciple of Jesus Christ lives his or her life just the way Jesus would live his life if Jesus were one of our contemporaries today. So in other words, the call to follow Jesus is to walk in Jesus' shoes. It's a call to live the same kind of life that Jesus lived a long time ago, and it's a call to be like Jesus. John Sherrill, who is a roving editor for Guideposts, was laying in a hospital bed, depressed and more than a little bit bored. Doctor said that he uh, would be there probably about 10 days while they tried to diagnose his stomach ail ailment. And, uh, but the discomfort was mostly gone, and he was more than ready to go home. But then at 4 o'clock in the morning, he was awakened by a nurse who was came in to take his blood pressure and temperature. And, and, uh, and when he was unable to get back to sleep, to sleep, he decided to take a walk. As he was hooked up to an IV pole, he made his way along the corridors, and his aluminum caddy rattled along beside him, and his 
Birkenstock sandals flopping on the floor. And the nurses, at the nurse's station, there was a young woman sitting at her computer. On his earlier passes, she hadn't even bothered to, to glance up, but, but this time she turned away from her computer and smiled at him and said, here comes the man with the Jesus shoes. <laughs> and so John laughed for the first time in days, and he said, Jesus shoes? And she said, yes, that's what my husband calls Birkenstock sandals. And so Cheryl looked down at, the, at his feet, at the brown sandals with the bands of leather across his feet. And indeed, they did look a lot like the shoes that you see in paintings of Jesus and his disciples. Well, they talked for a few moments, and, and the nurse told him that she had been working for 14 hours straight. That she and her husband worked overtime all the time just to, just to make ends meet. And so... They talked about that for a little bit, and he offered her some words of encouragement. And then feeling a little less sorry about himself, he resumed his walk with his sandals clomping along beneath him. And he wondered if he could turn those days in the hospital, those long days in the hospital, into a unique experience, unobtrusively walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Well, from that day on, he walked the halls of the hospital in a different mood. Most of the time, he didn't talk about God openly or, um, or anything like that. And he didn't pray out loud with people, but he was always praying silently. He listened with a new attentive, attentiveness, and he was astonished how how many of the doctors and nurses and other patients and visitors and volunteers and cleaning staff would, would come up to him and, and bring up their personal matters as he walked in his Jesus shoes. But of course, the difference was on the inside, wasn't it? It had nothing to do with the shoes he was wearing. It was something that happened on the inside. Because you see, instead of focusing on his own troubles, he became concerned, like Jesus, for other people. And he truly began to walk in Jesus' shoes. And so let me ask you something this morning. Do you have on your Jesus shoes today? Do you have them on today? The call to follow Jesus is a call to be heroic and it's a call to deny ourselves and it is a call to put on our Jesus shoes and to live our lives in loving service to God and to others. If anyone wants to become my disciple, said Jesus, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. My friends, would you be courageous enough to follow Jesus today? Would you be heroic enough to make that commitment in your life today? Would you put on your Jesus shoes this morning and follow in the path that Jesus has laid out for us? It's a commitment that every single one of us is called to make. And so the question I have for you today is this. Are you willing to truly follow Jesus? If anyone would become my disciple, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Would you come and follow the Lord? Amen.
we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to the Holy Spirit working in your life today as we sing together, Jesus, I my cross have taken. There may be someone here today who has not taken that step of faith and making that commitment to truly become a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've been an admirer of Jesus for a long time. Maybe you've seen his life and admired him from afar, but it's different from actually taking the step to follow him. Maybe today is the day that you need to commit your life to follow Jesus, to really and truly follow him. By doing that, you are taking a heroic step. By doing that, you are saying that you are going to deny yourself and you're going to put God and others ahead of yourself. And that's not an easy commitment to make, folks. It's not. But it's a commitment that we're called to make if we're going to be followers and not just admirers. Perhaps God is working in your heart in some way today. Perhaps God is calling you to follow. And we invite you to make that commitment today as we sing together. Maybe God is calling you to unite with our church today. We invite you to do that. Or maybe you just need a word of prayer. Would you come today as we sing together, Jesus, I my cross have taken. Would you come? May the Lord who emptied himself of all glory to come to this earth and become a human being like us, who became a servant, took up his own cross in our behalf, who died on that cross to serve our cause and who was raised to a new life that we may also have new life. May this God fill us with hope, strengthen our faith, and make us righteous servants of the everlasting God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.